What's up, man? Hi, <laughs> Clint. Oh my gosh, I have been wanting to have you on here for quite a while because of the extent that I know that you have in the film industry. When I first met you, I wasn't 100% sure what to think because there's a million and one filmmakers and stuff mm -hmm. in Arizona and especially that post auditions and the yeah. amount of like student films and stuff and then you go to the set and it turns out to just be some 19 year old kid that's just trying to get a credit in school and stuff. Yeah. So when I first went for your audition, I was just like, oh, okay, well, we'll, we'll see how this guy is. And then I did the audition. And I thought it was like any other audition for the film. Mm -hmm. But then we got to talking and stuff. I'm like, oh, this guy actually has passion in what he's doing. Yeah. This guy's actually taking his craft pretty seriously. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, all right, well, I'll go for it. And then um, slowly we kind of got to doing everything and seeing the passion that you had for film lit mm -hmm. my passion for acting and I was just like I'm finally awesome. working with somebody mm -hmm. that takes this craft as seriously as I do Yeah. and so just with that and then I was like wow okay this guy definitely has a story to tell so I'm super happy to have you on here yeah, thanks for having me man absolutely <laughs> um, so we're going to do something a little bit new with you okay. um, I've been kind of readjusting some stuff and I'm kind of experimenting with some stuff mm -hmm. we're going to try to start on a different note usually i have people introduce themselves right off the bat mm -hmm. but for this one completely off grid okay compared to what i usually do go ahead and give me your best joke quote or random fact off the top of your head oh shoot <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> we're going to test your uh your humor or your knowledge here so mm. for a joke, it could be a dad joke, a dirty joke, a dark joke, for quote, inspirational, useless, random, or for a random fact, it could just be one of those useless things. It's like, hey, did you know this is called this? Something. Mm. This might take a while. Yeah? Off the top of my head. I mean, you're a dad, so you got to have some dad jokes. I don't. No? My kids tease me all day, though. Yeah. So my daughter, she's 12, and all she does is tease me. So yeah. I, I dish it back, but not too much. So <laughs> I'm a cool dad. Yeah? Yeah. I don't know. I don't I don't really take quotes and, like, embrace them. Okay. Like, like as my mantra, like, going forward. Um, I feel like there's a lot of, um, yeah, I, I, I just don't take quotes as becoming my mantra. I mean, That's fair. Yeah. What about factor jokes? Do you have any like cheesy jokes you can think I'm not of? A joke teller. No, to be honest. Okay. <laughs> um, People are probably like, "Wow, this guy's really boring." Right out of the shoot. Honestly, you might be just need to, need to cut this whole section out. No, you're good. <laughs> honestly, I was kind of like, I should probably tell them before that way. That way, they have like 20 minutes or something to think of something. Because mm -hmm. for me, I remember I was on set once and um, they were doing a little prank to the sound girl who had the earphones and like mm -hmm. put the microphone right to my mouth, like tell her a joke, make her laugh. Mm -hmm. and I was doing, I'm like, I can't. Literally, when you put me on the spot, when you put me on pressure, I can't think of anything. Yeah, I just, yeah, well said. But I, uh, I don't know, like the quote thing as a mantra, I, I just feel a lot of empty platitudes when I hear quotes from certain people. Yeah. And it's not uh, genuine. So mm. No, I respect yeah. that, honestly. Yeah, so I, I, don't, I don't live or die by some quote I hear. I like that because it's genuine. A lot of times people like live by quotes and stuff yeah. and it's like, where did you hear this? A Pinterest board or something? Yeah, like, exactly. This isn't, unless like it's something that really has mm -hmm. some value to your life or that you relate to directly, mm -hmm. just having like, oh, I heard this quote by this guy 
for me, I do kind of live by quotes sometimes, but it's because I'm an analogy type of person. And so when someone's able to put an analogy from one thing to another, it gets mm-hmm. me to relate it and it gets me thinking of like, how can I relate that to my life? Mm-hmm. So I do have certain quotes that I'm like, okay, I don't live by them, mm-hmm. but it definitely I'm like, oh, I can see how that makes sense. Cool. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like, I don't know if it's a quote, but like a mantra for me um, is just doing things right. Just do it right okay. the first time. Uh, okay. Or just don't do it at all. I guess that's my own quote, right? Yeah. That's just kind of how I, uh, I got kids at home, and so, like, the filmmaking stuff, like, they need my time, so. Right. If I'm going to do filmmaking, we're going to do it the proper way. Right. Or just not at all, because my time's too valuable for my kids to, mm. to be spending doing something that I'm not taking 100% seriously. No, I get that, and so. I like that, because it, it, it cuts all the bullshit out. It does. It, yeah. it makes it, it's one of the, it's having value it's it makes it to where like don't invest your time unless it's going to be used wisely yeah. don't don't invest unless you're going to be putting 100 percent into it if mm-hmm. you're just going to be half-assing it don't even try don't mm-hmm. even go for it mm-hmm. which i respect that 100 yeah. percent. i like comedy i can't deliver a good joke so yeah <laughs> we'll be we're good there i uh i do like to have fun on set though we like to play a lot of jokes when the time's right yeah if it's like an emotional scene yeah it's going to be very serious but mm-hmm. there's moments where even in this most recent movie we've been filming that we just wrapped production up on, we 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 played a huge joke on the lead actor and his defense attorney during the court trial, um, <laughs> and only only myself and uh, one or two other people knew when the verdict was read that it was going to be the opposite of what the real verdict was in the script. Oh no! And we did it as a joke and filmed it <laughs> just to see uh, their reaction, and it turned out great. So yeah, I, I like to have fun. Was he kind of just sat there like dumbfounded, like whoa? whoa, whoa uh, at first, yeah, and it was just we have it all on recording. It was just hysterical. You know, thirty people in the courtroom sitting there, and uh, you know, it's first take of the verdict, and and we played a joke on him. So that's actually one of the ways that, off the top of my head, that you can think of that can make it to where you can either tell that they are actually acting or if they're just reading off the lines because if mm-hmm. they just play it off then like were you yeah. actually paying attention to yeah. the story or are you just yeah. reading off reading lines, lines. Mm-hmm. versus like when they're investing in the story it's like well, wait this isn't part of the story but mm-hmm. then they can maybe like bounce off and be like okay so we're we're, we're ad-libbing a little bit here we're mm-hmm. kind of changing things up so I feel like that also kind of it's a little bit test to the actors that you have portraying mm-hmm. the story of whether or not they can go along with it, whether they're going to be like, hold up, hold this, this isn't in the script. It's like, well, this might not be in the script. Just go with it. See, yeah. what, see what you can do. For sure. See, see what we can play with. Yeah. So I will get to your introduction for those who <laughs> don't know who you are. Um, go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, maybe any accolades, accomplishments, a um, little bit about who you are, what you do. Mm-hmm. I'll let you go. Um, so my name's Clint Clarkson. Um, I am a filmmaker. Um, I'm a father. I've been married for 16 years. Just celebrated my 16th anniversary. Oh, congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, and I own a home inspection company and have a, a partner in that. So it gives me a lot of flexibility to be able to do a lot of this filmmaking stuff. And then I own a, a, a filmmaking LLC that I run all the, the filmmaking work through. Um, okay. Yep, so kind of have a, a background of a variety of things. Um, I'm 36 now. Uh, when I was 20, I went to school for audio engineering. Mm. Um, so like microphones, this stuff's just right up my alley. So I went to the Conservatory of Recording Arts and Sciences here in Arizona. They're like one of the 
premier audio schools. Okay. Uh, did that because I had a huge passion for country music. And so, you know, my goal was to get to Nashville and work in the studios and write songs and live that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, so went to school for that, uh, you know, graduated pretty much top of my class. Uh, my wife and I were young. We were like 20 years old at the time. Really? Uh-huh. And so we were, we had been married like a year. Um, we moved out to Nashville for an internship at uh, Soundstage Studios, which was like one of the premier studios in Nashville where like most huge records have been uh, recorded out of. So I, uh, I was interning there and working at Radio Shack and, yep, paying my dues at 20, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, just trying to finish that, that degree so I could get that uh, audio engineering degree completed with those internship hours. Um, and while I was there, I, I met a studio owner in Nashville who offered me a job at another studio. Oh, wow. When I was working at Radio Shack. So, Heck yeah. Right? Of all things. He came in to find some DB25 connectors, which is like a, a type of connector that connects into this, the back of consoles, record, okay. huge recording consoles, yeah. where a lot of inputs go in. And I asked him why he needed DB25 connectors, which is really random. And it turns out he owned a studio. So... Anyways, I ended up transitioning over there and was working there as a tracking engineer, recording live sessions. Okay. Uh, with you know union musicians like top of the line musicians out there, um, and you know did that for a little while. Um, it was cool. Uh, had the chance to uh, even you know play guitar on an album that that like went nationwide. I guess really? back in those days it was like iTunes, you know. Yeah, um, so, <laughs> iTunes. Um, Back when you had to like download each individual. Yeah, song. I mean that was like 2009. It's, I mean, it's crazy. It's almost 15 years ago. I it's I wild. still hate the thought of like thinking of anything in like close like the 2010s yeah. as that long ago. And I'm like, it it's seem crazy. Like... And even like the audio realm has changed so much since yeah. 2009. Like what you can do in a home studio now that you would have to like in the past have huge infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, that you can do at home now is just incredible. But yeah, we uh, I spent a lot of time out there. Um, we ended up moving back to Arizona. Um, my father passed away in 2010. Um, things were getting rocky with that studio too. Had some mm. disagreements on some things. Um, and I ended up parting ways and, and uh, just I didn't want to start back at the very bottom. Um, and then uh, I ended up coming back to Arizona and uh, was doing drone photography and drone video work, mm. and that's kind of what led me back into the 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 art artistic side, I guess you could say, of things. Um, and so, I was doing home inspections at this time, um, and then fast forward to like 2019, my uh, now business partner and I we we went off on our own and opened up our own home inspection company here in this market, which is just was insane in 2019 just mm. so busy the amount of work coming in um, for home inspections that um, you know I was working 60 to 70 hours a week doing that plus doing film work um, and then any film gigs I was getting I would take basically half of what I would make off of those um, invoices and I would just put it right back into film equipment oh wow okay. and so my goal over time was to just try to accrue important Film equipment, stuff that doesn't lose its value. Like cameras lose value. Yeah. There's a new camera every year that comes out, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was investing in stuff like lighting, grip equipment, electric, um, and um, 
so over time I've just accrued a pretty large amount of my own equipment that I can film you know a full-length feature with Wow uh, uh-huh and so that you know that came from my side hustle doing filmmaking stuff whether it was you know a wedding here or there or um, a lot of corporate nonprofit work mm. um, some real estate not a ton in that realm um, you know and then even music videos um, I did quite a few music videos that you know every time I'd get an invoice pay, paid to me I would take half of that and just put it right back into equipment really so, uh-huh so I've just I've gotten to that point where I've you know I've got a, a nice setup that I don't have to rely on a rental house. If, if there's a project I really want to do, like we did with Noche, yeah, I can basically self-fund it. You know, in a lot of ways like that. You know, with 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 the the grip and lighting, right? So, kind of cool. So yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell. I've you know I got a few kids, three kids. Um, yeah, twelve, seven, and three. Um, they're hilarious <laughs> and uh, we got several dogs <laughs> yeah so, yeah yeah I remember and, uh, going over to uh, your place to, yeah, to do know. the ADR and you got to meet them that, yeah. was, that was awesome yeah so that's kind of me in a nutshell I uh, the filmmaking thing for me I'm I, it's an obsession yeah um, I what I learned from that Nashville experience was to never put my eggs in one basket because Nashville, there's your quote. There you go. Yeah, there Don't we go. Don't put your eggs in one basket, right? Um, I learned from that experience that, like, when your networks are solely based on somebody else's networks, mm-hmm. and if the rug gets pulled out from under you, you don't have those networks, especially in tight-knit communities like art. Yeah. You know, you're talking music. You're talking filmmaking. It's a small, you know, it's like a small town. Right. Everybody knows everybody. Um, and so I always learned to not put my eggs in one basket. So I would say like diversifying. And so for me, um, that's why I can never give up like home inspections. Yeah. Because it, it's, it's been a very nice profession to have. Uh, it's paid very well and I've been very fortunate and it's also allowed me, you know, we have guys that work for us. So it allows me, if I need to do a 20 day shoot, I can take 20 days off. Cause it's your company. And you, then exactly. And then jump right back into yeah. that once I'm done. Um, and it keeps me balanced, I would say, um, because for me, I would be either too burned out if if I was constantly just doing that. And I have to have that creative outlet. Yeah. Like my brain has to have that creative outlet to to be able to uh, be happy, to be honest. I think everyone needs some sort of creative outlet, wh- whether it's mm-hmm. photography, filmmaking, painting, like mm-hmm. some sort. I don't think our brains are wired in a way to not be creative. I mean, mm-hmm. even... Thinking back to our earliest ancestors with writing hieroglyphics on walls and stuff, like there's right. always been some sort of artistic endeavor that humans mm-hmm. have pursued, and so I definitely, I truly feel that everybody needs to find some sort of creative outlet. Now, whether or not you want to make a business out of it or cre- or creative mm-hmm. or yeah, do some yeah. sort of professional pursuit out of it, that's completely, that's a whole nother thing. But having some sort of creative outlet is I feel like what truly does help us in a mental capacity. For sure. For sure. I, it, I'm i fascinated by that stuff too. Like, yeah. I commute like crazy, right? Um, I'm always driving from parts of the valley to other parts of the valley. Um, and so I'm always listening to a good book or a good mm-hmm. podcast. But yeah, like you're talking the hieroglyph stuff. I, that stuff fascinates me. Yeah. I don't think we know a whole lot about our own history, to be honest. Oh, absolutely. Like we could really go deep here down yeah. the rabbit hole. <laughs> but I, yeah, I, I'm fascinated by uh, those same types of things. But I agree. I think 
I think that's what makes humanity humanity is art. Yeah. It's it's the creative side. It's how we that's, express ourselves. Yep. It's how we're able yep. to portray emotion, how mm-hmm. we're able to portray get it's like how we're able to step out of the realm of reality mm-hmm. and go into our own realm of reality mm-hmm. or at least our expression of it. So mm-hmm. um that's why anytime someone is in some sort of rut or something one of the first mm-hmm. things I try to go through is like, what kind of creative outlets do you have? Do you draw? Do you sure. paint? Do you do photography? Like, I have too many at this yeah. point yeah. because of the fact of I just I love. I'm sometimes I'm not the best with talking about like emotional stuff or mm-hmm. getting into that. Like I'm in therapy and that does kind of help, mm-hmm. but at the same time, when I am taking photos or when I'm doing this creative thing, it kind of gets my brain wiring in a way that's like it's activating so many parts of my brain at mm-hmm. once physical mental kind of making it like oh what would make what would make this look appealing and stuff mm-hmm. and like i was editing even some pictures last night and even i'll i'll edit one picture but then i'll keep it like that for like a couple days because i want to go i've learned that i'll sometimes go back to that same picture and be like actually mm-hmm. i want to crop it a different way i want to yeah. make it look a little bit more abstract i want to make it a little a little bit more like this and like kind of visualizing it maybe on a magazine cover or something and like mm-hmm. Having that kind of creative outlet is, it, it's just, it's like magic. Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I It's an obsession for me, and it's almost a, I'm really hard on myself, so it's almost like a, yeah. it's a, a, a blessing and a curse. In a oh, lot absolutely. Of ways, you know, because you, you like super analyze your work. Yeah. And, and, and like being in filmmaking, it's, it's hard to watch movies now without analyzing the oh movie the whole God. time, right? Agree. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you do as an actor. Oh yeah, all the time. Like before I got into acting, I would just watch a movie. Maybe, okay, cool. But then going through multiple different acting classes and being on set and doing mm-hmm. all this. Now I'm like, I'm looking at certain ones, like certain movies that first I was like, oh, this is phenomenal or something. But I'll look mm-hmm. back and be like, actually, yeah, I don't like the way that they're portraying that emotion. Mm-hmm. Like this isn't with the context of what's going on. Either there's there's a complete underlying type of thing going on here mm-hmm. or they are just a glorified model that's yeah. taking on this role of per- or of portraying this emotion because this this doesn't look authentic at all mm-hmm. and so i'm constantly looking back and like this doesn't look real or like i'll sometimes see something like oh my god mm-hmm. you have to have the, the eye of an artist to be able to see the true passion that he has behind yeah. or she has behind this like there's some I've actually kind of had that recollection a lot more lately with some of the films that at first I didn't really like. They're maybe a little too slow or a little bit mm-hmm. too boring for me. But then now that I've gotten further into the filmmaking world and the acting world, I have so much more appreciation for some of these films that aren't Hollywoodified, but they're mm-hmm. independent films. And so there's so much more of a deep story. There's so much more for emotion, sure. so much more of this. And I'll, go, I'll look back and be like, well, it's not Tom Hanks or... Mm-hmm. Um, Bradley Pitt or something, or what? I don't know. Bradley, Bra- Bradley Pitt, <laughs> Brad Pitt or something. That's a good one. I, I just I saw a thing earlier with Brad Pitt on the thing yeah, for good. some reason. I think it said Bradley or something on there. Huh. Um, but I'll be like, I'll look back and be like, I don't know who that actor is, but their work's phenomenal. I can yeah. feel the emotion through the screen. I can mm-hmm. feel everything they're doing. Like this looks real. Yeah, it, I, I could see that there's the emotional tug there, and like I, it sure. invests me so much more. I'm like, I don't know why I didn't like this film before. I uh, yeah, no, I those household names, like you're saying, Bradley. Pitt, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's there's some certain talent there for sure, and and genetics was a good thing for him too. Oh, like yeah. he's he's a handsome dude, and I, 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 you know, he's 
Yeah, he's going to draw an audience just based on those two things alone. Right. But, like, um, one thing I learned being around, like, musicians mm -hmm. was how many talented musicians I would see in recording studios mm -hmm. and, like, the union musicians. And they would be, like, one-take one ponies. They would hear the song, like, a demo of the song or, mm -hmm. like, a rough recording. They would look at the na national number charts, which they basically cut rhythm sections in a number chart system, so... Um, they can go in the studio and we could literally in, a, in three hours or a four hour block cut eight to ten songs Oh wow! in three to four hours just the rhythm sections mm -hmm. and then the next day come in and do the lead instrument sections and okay. you can crank out an entire practically an album in like two days worth of tracking right? because these union musicians are so talented but I guess my point to that is I saw so many people like that that like just fly under the radar that are so insanely talented mm -hmm. that don't become Bradley Pitt, right? <laughs> I think I was you thinking know, Bradley and Cooper, I know, and I'm I got this mixed up. Yeah, I'm just teasing you. <laughs> uh, you know that that you're like, it made me never want to pick up a guitar again because uh, you're like, dude, this guy's so good. And I I've played guitar since I was I don't know 12, 13 years old. Yeah, my cousin got me into it, and I, it was an obsession for me for years, uh, guitar and writing music. But, you know, there's so many, like you're saying, there's so many talented people out there that don't get that recognition. There's just so, there's so few places to be able to, you know, fit everybody up there. But what's beautiful now is, you know, the, the things are changing quite a bit. Independent yeah. media is getting a, a lot better opportunity for distribution. Um, you know, there's, there's opportunities out there for people who don't have a household name like Brad Pitt to, yeah. to, to get the chance to be on the front and center of the screen so and and you know the technology like i was just talking about audio how it's changed so much in the last 15 years yeah um same thing with film i mean literally going from film to digital mm -hmm. to a digital sensor it's game changing and has democratized filmmaking in so many right. ways um, that i would have never been able to get into it if it was still just being shot on film um the the price for just lighting um, you know, if I wanted to go buy some HMI light, a huge HMI light, um, I mean, e even like an M18, yeah. um, I, the cost of that, I can't think off the top of my head, but it's probably four or five times more than buying the Aperture 1200D, right. which is, you know, a comparable light to the M18 as far as output and, and light quality. Um, so it's, you know, the, the price of, of this equipment's gone down to where it has democratized it for people like me to be able to jump in the yeah. game and express our art and not have to worry about the gatekeepers yeah. that are preventing that from happening. And so it's really cool. And so it, it gives somebody like me or you that opportunity. That's kind of what we did with Noche. Yeah. So. No, and that's, that's one of the things that I do love about kind of the technological advance, advancements, especially in the film industry, is the fact that you don't have to be in Hollywood or work with these production studios to get high quality stuff anymore. Mm -hmm. The stuff that's available now to regular consumers, like you can get a Sony A7 something and be able to shoot in 4K. Mm -hmm. 10, 15 years ago, you would have to invest a couple tens of thousands of dollars yeah. to be able to get what you can get now at a consumer mm -hmm. level instead of being like, oh, well, you have to have the Sony budget and be mm -hmm. able to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars on this nice camera to be able to get that 8K resolution mm -hmm. with this frame rate and all this kind of stuff that goes into it. But now, 
I, it, it, I think it's it has its pros and cons with the fact that like now everybody can do it, and so you do still have to kind of filter out those who are serious about it mm-hmm. versus those who For aren't. Sure. But on the contrary, you do have the ability now to see the work of those people that have the vision but don't have the budget. Mm-hmm. That be like, well, I can maybe go use my credit card, spend a thousand dollars, get a decent camera and maybe hire an editor off of Fiverr or something, or even just find someone who has a passion for editing but maybe needs a little bit of work behind his belt, mm-hmm. work together and you guys can collaborate, submit to a film festival and mm-hmm. do that instead of like, well, the only way that I can become a filmmaker is now somehow getting hired in Hollywood by these giant yeah. things and being under their belts and stuff. Like It gives the independent makers a voice that they never had before. For sure. And I do believe that... It's good and bad, but overall, I mean, if it wasn't for that, things like Noche wouldn't exist, or right. things like Dog Bite Murders wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. Things like these little films that are like that originated maybe off a camcorder or something, or just with an idea, have the ability to actually get born. Like obviously, there's still big hurdles mm-hmm. like locations or sound design. Mm-hmm. There's still some. There's still definitely a difference unless like somehow you can pull magic off and make a small budget thing look like a huge enormous budget thing which mm-hmm. some people have the ability to do for sure. but it's still like the world for it is changing and I'm excited to see honestly where it goes because I've, I've yeah. personally seen like even on like social media TikTok YouTube and stuff some of the quality of production that I've seen on there I'm like mm-hmm. this you wouldn't be able like for something like YouTube you wouldn't expect no. this high of production for this Mm-mm. well and AI, love it or hate it, it's it's changing a lot oh, yeah. of stuff too. Um, I mean, just the fact that I could storyboard through AI mm. instead of having to, unfortunately, not hire an AI artist or a storyboard artist. Yeah, I don't storyboard, but for the director that does, right, they totally could like storyboard their whole film to try to yeah. get a pitch to to investors. Uh, so many things have changed just in AI being used in audio in the audio realm, um, but. Sky's the limit. Like for me, like my word of advice is to just constantly like learn. Like what I live for is curiosity. Outside of my family, like I, of course, I live for my family. Like mm-hmm. that's what motivates me every day. But outside of that, it's curiosity motivates me. Um, and so, like, to be able to reach out to some of the, like the best cinematographers, because when I when I look at myself as a filmmaker, what do I think of first and foremost? is a cinematographer right um and i i realized over time okay that role that i take on as a cinematographer more as a director role too yeah because i do have this vision that's tied to it but it all surrounds the cinematography mm-hmm. i want the visuals to be just as good as they can be to really keep a viewer watching mm-hmm. um and so like to be able to reach out to through social media or through private messaging to some of the best cinematographers that I look up to and have them reach out or give advice or mentorship has been awesome. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, I, the sky's the limit. Like I said, like, just being curious, and if you're passionate about this sort of thing, you can figure out a way um, to get really good at it um, without having to, you know, work in Hollywood starting on a grip truck, you know, in electric or grip and slowly building your way up the, the the industry has changed in a lot of ways where you know to get your foot in the door uh you know one of my favorite cinematographers is shane hurlbutt out of 
L.A. He did like Terminator Salvation, greatest game ever played. Some of those movies, beautiful cinematography. You know, he started out Grip and Electric. I, I think he was in Grip, um, and and you know slowly worked his way up to being a DP. Um, you know, he if you really want to get into learning cinematography, he he carries a full course. He teaches you from start to finish how to do really? cinematography. Oh yeah, it's the best out there. Mm. Shane Hurlbut, he's incredible. Um, and, you know, he teaches you every concept from exposure with a light meter to blocking scenes. Uh, for me, you know, his his work and taking his courses over the years has helped in so many ways. And there's other cinematographers I've, I've you know, um, studied their work or reached out to them and picked their brain. Mm. Um, but his, his, his platform he offers to aspiring DPs is incredible uh, to, to take what he's learned over, you know, 30 years worth of being a DP um, and grip and electric and condense it for you on in a platform and right. you can just consume everything and avoid all those pitfalls that, and all those hurdles that take years and years of trial and error you can avoid all that that's where we're at right now yeah and so if you have the drive and you really want to truly learn the craft and master it and not just be okay like the opportunities are out there and it's amazing so I know that you said you went to school for sound design and then uh, audio uh, engineering. Or, so, yep, yeah, sound, sound design design's part of it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. for for audio, you went to school for uh -huh. audio, um, which has a part in filmmaking Huge and cinematography. But part. obviously, there's a lot of different stuff, especially when you are the cinematographer. Mm -hmm. For you, what was the process like of learning? Because when I when I personally worked with you, you do ha you have an immense amount of knowledge of cinematography. Like when I went over mm -hmm. to your house to do ADR stuff, and like you were kind of showing me some of the color grading stuff, some of um, mm -hmm. like leveling and all this different kind of stuff. That's I'm assuming you wouldn't necessarily learn that kind of stuff in audio school. No. Um, so uh, where where did that knowledge come from for being able to where knowing what equipment was good, knowing what shots were good, kind of learning all the cinematography for you. Yeah, like I said, Shane Hurl, but his course was a huge kind of that uh, that place where I jumped off into this whole thing. Okay, um, was with his his work. Um, you know, just learning the basics of like operating a camera and composition. Uh, full time filmmaker has a great course. Oh, I know them. Yes, yeah. I, they, I've, they I've been following work. them for I, a while. Yeah, I, I bought their course in like 2017, I think. Okay. As I just I'll I'll consume whatever, and and get all these different courses. Um, but really, once I started to really delve into the why you're doing certain things with lights and mm -hmm. realizing that lighting is everything to to a scene. Obviously, the acting's so crucial. Yeah. Um, and sound is so important or else it'll check a person out so quick. Right. But the visual side of it, it's not how fancy of a camera you have or what fancy lens you're shooting on. It's the lighting, mm -hmm. the quality of the light, the tone, the volume. Making a, a, an image volumetric is really the key um, in creating contrast. That's what gets somebody to stay looking at an image on a screen. And so for me, it was how do I reverse engineer what these guys are doing? Mm. And so what I would do is get on websites like Shot Deck. Have you ever seen that site? It's 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 I it's really cool. It's a, it's an annual subscription. Uh, it's like a hundred bucks a year, I think. Um, but it has a vast majority of major motion pictures, still frames from the movies. Oh wow! Categorized, and you can go on there, and if you want an exterior daytime, exterior interior, or interior night, you can check all these and filter. Uh, you can type in keywords, and there's you know tags on each image, 
and it'll pull up. And let's say you want to do a, a night interior shot, mm-hmm. um, and you want to filter it even more by like period, time period. Let's say eighteen nineties. Mm-hmm. It'll filter and funnel it down to that specific period, night interiors, eighteen nineties. And kind of like show you how to do the or like show. No, it won't show you how. It'll just show you images. Oh. And then what I do is I look at the image and dissect where is the light coming from. Oh, okay, interesting. Are they using negative fill to create shadow and contrast? You know, if I'm looking at an actor's face and I see this beautiful key light hitting their face, and it's exposed really well, um, and then I look at the other side of the face and it's real dark shadow, I'm figuring out, okay, what did they do to get that dark shadow? Did they bring in negative fill, which is like a black duvetine? Did they bring that right in close, just out yeah. of frame? to really prevent light from bouncing off the walls and hitting this side of the face to create fill. We want to create a negative fill by removing light. Um, so what I'll, that's why I say it's a blessing and a curse because when I watch movies now, all I do is dissect the scene. <laughs> and pretty soon I'm like not watching the movie and paying attention to the story yeah. because I'm watching either the camera movement, the composition, or the lighting. And I'm like, I, my wife, it drives her crazy because then I'm like, hey, I gotta, we got to rewind it. I totally <laughs> was not paying attention to the story because I'm just looking at the visual um, so intently here that yeah. I'm dissecting exactly what they did in that scene. I know. And so that's what I do. And, and you know, taking kind of those concepts uh, and using softwares to create lighting diagrams. And then experimenting with those on my own over the years. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how many. I sleep probably four hours a night. I, <laughs> I don't do drugs. I've never done drugs. I don't do drugs. I don't drink. Um, but I sleep probably four hours a night because when I tuck the kids in bed, what do I go do? You know, late at night is working on more film stuff, yeah. testing out different ways of light stuff, different types of diffusion, negative fill bouncing light into like a cove lighting setup. Um, I I use that time to really experiment and find kind of the look I like. And so I'll take a scene, I'll go on on Shot Deck on that website and find like a scene I really like. Let's just say, for instance, um, the Queen's Gambit, Mm -hmm. the cinematography in that is amazing. Okay, so I'll, I'll look at a frame in that and I'll look at it and draw it out on a lighting diagram, you know, basically like a, a framework of what the room looks like, where the actors are at, right. and where is that light coming from, and then dissect the quality of light that was hitting them. You know, was it hard light? Was it diffused light through diffusion, creating a soft light? Was it a soft pop? Are they, you know, halfway lit with hard light, soft light up here, hard light down here, to create like the effect of, you know, light going through a window uh, with maybe curtains, um, and part of it's hard light and part of it's soft light. Um, and I'll dissect that, and then I'm looking at the contrast of light, and then I'm looking at um, the set design in the scene. You know, what is, mm. what's creating interest in that image for me? And it's all those things, you know. Um, that's what I'll do to, to, to create an image. Um, that's how I got to where I'm at now is just tons of hard work. Like yeah. hours and hours and hours of sitting a camera on a tripod and building a frame and, and, and learning the tricks of how I like to expose the image to give it a, a nice visual um, that will keep people watching. Um, but, I mean, it, the, the tools are out there. Yeah. You just really have to work hard. That's cool, though, that you found 
like you didn't go through the rabbit hole of falling for the BS that like the fanciest camera could get you the best shot type of thing mm-hmm. that you found that it was something like lighting that can mm-hmm. be the make or break type of thing because mm-hmm. I've definitely seen numerous cinematographers and videographers that try to hype up their work because of the equipment that they use yeah. meaning the camera like oh I just bought a $20,000 camera with this mm-hmm. it shoots 16k so it's the best yeah. thing out there but I look at the thing I'm like there's just something missing about this like mm-hmm. there's yeah it's very crisp it's very mm-hmm. nice to look yeah. at but like there's something off like it, it's too saturated maybe mm-hmm. there's too much shadows over here there's too much contrast like I, I understand kind of what you're going mm-hmm. for but either color grading needs to happen a little bit better mm-hmm. and you need to do this but then it's also just the eye of the beholder yeah. you, you have to kind of it's so subjective it, yeah that, that's one of the reasons why like something like film and art is so it, it's it's very difficult to judge because what mm-hmm. you think something might need to look like isn't what they were going for yeah so when you're looking at a shot I'm like oh it's too saturated like, actually I was going for saturated mm-hmm. that's just kind of what I like I like when colors are saturated when there's a lot of contrast mm-hmm. when there's deeper this or less deep in this area and I'm like oh I mean if, if that's yeah. what you're going for then awesome mm-hmm. um, but that that's kind of piggybacking off of like your why behind mm-hmm. the thing if you are wanting a little bit more of this or a little bit more of that I mean there's certain directors that like you look at their stuff and you can tell it's directed by them just based off mm-hmm. of their work mm-hmm. and some other people initially when they first get their start look at it and they're like I don't like that at all. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, you don't have to like it. I like it. This yeah. is my film. This is how I want it. Yeah, this is my baby. Give it, mm-hmm. give it a little bit of time. Understand the story. Like, it's also hard to judge a puzzle by each of the individual pieces, mm-hmm. versus looking at it when it's all already put together. Because you can look at something like, I don't like how this looks. Like, just give it some time. Mm-hmm. Let me put it together, and then once you see all the pieces put together, then you'll get to exactly. see the finished product. Instead of just like, oh well. I don't like this sound. I don't like this light. I don't like this. But that was one of the, the first things I even noticed with being w- on set with you was like, obviously you cared about the camera stuff, but the biggest thing that I saw you working on was the lighting. Yeah. Like, yeah, you were you were sitting there adjusting the camera settings and stuff like any any regular cinematographer. But the attention to detail and the passion that you had behind the lighting, I was just like. Is it really that important? Like, holy crap! Oh, and then everything. when I saw the finished version, I'm like, "This is everything!" Holy shit! Like, yeah, I didn't realize that the lighting could affect the mood. It can affect all this that much more. It can portray so much more of the story if it's shown in the right way. Yeah, and it has to be like, for me, I love like dramas. Yeah, I don't get in. I love action movies too, but um. For me, like, telling true stories, like we were talking about when we started at the beginning about, like, just humanity, like hieroglyphs on the wall or, you know, petroglyphs. Um, For me, like, what captivates me watching movies is not to go see the the next, like, action movie or the next superhero movie. Mm -hmm. For me, it's, like, true stories or historical fiction um, that's a a period piece. For me, maybe it's just because my eye is drawn to the cinematography and the lighting that's in, intentionally done for like a period piece. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it, if you want, if you want to get into like DP type work, you, you just every movie has a different feel about it, mm. and so you have to light it toward that type. Um, so, yeah, the sky's the limit. And 
like you were saying, like cameras. I agree. I, you don't have to have the most expensive camera. It's, it would be nice to have an Ari Alexa. I, I don't. <laughs> I'd love to have um, to have one. But uh, you know, one of my favorite cinematographers is out of Russia, and him and I converse back and forth ever so often. Um, and some of his best work I've seen was done on the Black Magic cinema cameras. Really? Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. That's awesome. And if you compared his images to the Ari Alexa or some of the images you see out of Hollywood, it, it's neck and neck. Mm. That's how good it is. And my thing was always, well, until I can get to that point where the camera's what's holding me back. Obviously, I'd love to shoot on a set with Ari right. Alexa. But it, it's like what you're saying. If you have the tools in front of you and you know how what you're doing with the lighting, you can make you know a, a Panasonic GH5 you know, that was like the first camera I got. Uh, you can make that look amazing. Yeah. Um, but there are limits there. I, yeah. I recognize that. But yeah, there's there's so many opportunities. If you if you want to learn, um, you know, I might not be the smartest in the room, but I'm gonna wor- outwork you every time. So I like that. That's that's me. Um, and that means I'll I'll get four hours of sleep a night, <laughs> and I'll live like that. And I've done that for years now, where I'm sleeping four or five hours a night at most. Just drive your wife crazy. Just, just not enough hours in the day, unfortunately. Yeah, you know, I had the opportunity to. Uh, I got offered a, a gig. Um, we explored a, an opportunity, and it was because of my video uh, and an audio background that I got offered a gig to to be a producer on a really big show. Oh wow! Um, uh, but it was, um, and and I turned it down. Uh, and this was like three or four years ago. Um, but the the guy I knew who had offered me that gig, um, you know, he said you're gonna have to come at, at some point. You're gonna have to re- reach a crossroads where you realize there's just not enough hours in the day, mm. and so you're gonna have to pick or choose one or the other. And and that was in reference to filmmaking or the <laughs> home inspection yeah. stuff, you know. And I said no, I get it, and I and I and and I and I see that a lot. He was correct in a lot of those ways. Um, for the time being, I'm still young, and so for me, uh, I just tend to burn the candle at both ends in the meantime i think there will come a day though i i hope um where you know this takes even more of my time um rather than the opposite way oh yeah but yeah i just you can't put your eggs in one basket ever you know um i just i refuse to do that it's it's kind of swinging back to the whole equipment thing i've been noticing that too with um as a photographer obviously there are really good cameras that I'd love to shoot with, Sony a7 III, mm-hmm. uh, maybe even like the uh, Canon R6 or R5 mm-hmm. or something. Not most top-line cameras, but definitely good. But I had a notion a while back, like, oh, if I have one of those, I can get such better images. And then I'm glad I didn't get those cameras back then, though, because it forced me to learn even more on the actual mm-hmm. schematics and everything behind the image. To where now I I create images that people are like oh what's that taking I'm like yeah Canon T6i it's yeah. like uh, they're like are you serious I'm like if you take the time to learn your settings learn the lighting learn this you can make something look good now mm-hmm. obviously I'm at a point to where I do need to upgrade not because I want the image to be more bright or anything but because things like oh, I need a faster shutter speed I mm-hmm. need better autofocus I need mm-hmm. um, stuff yeah, that those only are perks that come along the way yeah I need yeah. something that only 
a, a upgraded camera can give me mm-hmm. versus instead of like, oh, I just want to be able to take a better image. It's like, well, no, I just need to learn how to use yeah. the tools that you have already. Yeah, I. that's why I just, you know, I, sh- I shoot black magic cameras. Um, yeah. And I love them. And I love the workflow. Um, I love that I can take that directly into DaVinci Resolve and use the DaVinci wide gamut color space mm. as my as my color space that I'm working in. And I don't have to use transforms to get it into that color space. It's just there. Um, you know, if we're going to bring in something that has maybe some VFX into there, we obviously can take aces and then do a color space transform to bring it into that DaVinci wide gamut color space. Um, but I just love being able to use that product from from Blackmagic and it goes straight into my editing software flawlessly mm-hmm. and everything's smooth. Um, they're great cameras. They really are. Um, the whole family from the 12Ks to the Pocket 6Ks, they're amazing cameras. Uh, super powerful if you know what you're doing. Oh, yeah. The key is if you know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you got to learn your equipment. Um, you know, I those cameras shoot high ISO for nighttime. It, you can shoot. Um, you know, it has um, basically two different settings in layman's terms. You know, like I think the the uh, 400 ISO is its standard and 3200 ISO. It has two, two different ones for like basically daytime and nighttime. Um, but just because 3200 ISO is the night, you know, the standard for that nighttime uh, shots, I don't shoot at 3200 ISO at night. Hmm. Okay. Um, if you learn your camera and you learn what it picks up light at the best, and that's just through tons of trial and error and practice, yeah, you can figure out how to pull out the best image from your from that camera. So it's about what it's about how much you learn about the camera, and you can really do so much with it. You know, all these cinema cameras that are out now, they're they're so close to each other in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, no, I I agree because I've I've worked on a few sets that a lot of them have been using the Black Magic, and a lot of times. When I first got on, I'm like, oh, sweet. This is going to make a really good production and stuff just because I'm like, oh, you guys are using such mm-hmm. a high-end camera. But because they didn't know how to use it, it looked like crappy footage. We Nothing. shot Noche on Blackmagic. Yeah, I know. And that looks like it was filmed on <laughs> something that Hollywood, only only the industry of Hollywood would have. It doesn't look like just a consumer-level yeah. cinema camera. There's a DP buddy of mine who's from back east and him and I were messaging back and forth, and he 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 has an Ari Alexa now, a thirty-five uh, millimeter, and uh, and uh, we joked. I said, "What are you using for your B cam?" And he said, "I'm still using my Pocket Six K." <laughs> I said, "Are you really?" He said, "Yeah, for run and gun and gimbal shots and handheld yeah. work." He said, "I still use the Six K as my B cam, and my A cam is my Ari Alexa." And he 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 joked. He's like, "I call my Pocket Six K my my the little brother to my Alexa thirty-five." Um, and so, because they both, you know, go hand in hand, the the image quality is, it's hard to tell which one was what. That's that awesome. Way, when you compare the A and B of each and say, okay, which image here is the Alexa, which one is, is the Blackmagic? Very, very similar imaging. Um, obviously, the Alexa rolls off the highlights a little cleaner. Um, there's things like that. But, um, yeah, you can, the sky's the limit, man. If you're motivated and you want to learn and work harder than everybody else, you can, yeah. you can do it. And that's cool that you were able to use utilize resources like different um, courses and stuff. I know it gets a little bit iffy in the world of courses because there's yeah, so there's many people, people that are claiming. like, oh, here's a $500 course on this. And it's like yeah. you go into it and it's like, here's what ISO is. And it's like, 
this yeah. is what I pay five hundred dollars yeah. to learn. Yeah. So it is kind of difficult to filter out which courses are real, which courses yeah. are going to be worth the money and stuff. But yeah, I, there there's some good ones out there. I like I said, I would just go to the source. Like, why not? If you're gonna like learn this stuff and you yeah. want to learn it right, go through a course like Shane Hurl. But how did you find a course that actually held value to it instead of like falling into the rat trap of like finding some random YouTuber that's just like, oh, here's my course? Because somebody like Shane Hurl, but's an industry standard, ASC, okay. Hollywood cinematographer. I mean, he's top of the line. So just doing good research on yeah, who, who's yeah. who's doing it. <laughs> I mean, one of the most key things for me was, like, just blocking scenes. Mm -hmm. I I don't go on any set ever without all my scenes blocked ahead of time. You yeah. remember on Noche what we did. Like, yeah. Well in advance of going on set, I sent you blocking diagrams with animation. And it showed the little, remember the little circles moving around? Yeah. Remember Which, that? That was a completely new experience yeah, for me. For Hollywood Camera Works. Uh, that's the software I use for blocking all my diagrams and that's not me just like out of thin air figuring out to use Hollywood camera works it was Shane Hurlbut okay you know uh, taking his I took one of his courses he he shot semi-pro that movie with uh, uh, Will Ferrell oh yeah mm -hmm, Woody Harrelson yeah um, he shot that movie and he has a great course it's like a four-hour course on on shooting one scene in that movie and how they move camera movement and wow. actor movement and combining it all together and using a software to block a scene ahead of time so that everybody shows up on set the same day knowing exactly what's happening. Yeah. And it's just more efficient. Because I'm shooting independent type films. And, you know, we, instead of, you know, 40 to 60 days on a set or on a, on a production, we got about 18 to 20. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the less time I can waste on set having to, direct people of where they need to move to yeah the more time we can actually then get creative on set oh yeah and that. so if everybody shows up already like having what i like to do and you know it's my little thing i like to do is the concept in hollywood is block light shoot mm -hmm. block the scene light it shoot it what i like to do is knock out the blocking and 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 the lighting ahead of time in in these diagrams and Get where do I want my actors in this scene to move? Because mm -hmm. correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not an actor, never have been, never claim to be. <laughs> but I respect the hell out of what you guys do and yeah. the vulnerability you guys have to do on in camera. Um, it's very difficult what you guys do, and and what motivates an actor in a scene with movement would be you know what in that story, and I guess more from like a method actor maybe. But what motivates that? that actor to move within the scene? Is there some emotional event in the scene yeah. that moves them from one spot to the other? You know, um, And I like to have that all prepped in pre-production in diagrams, and then I'll, right. and I'll record that in a screen recording through Zoom and send it out to all the actors for that scene and be like, hey, here's, here's my blocking diagram. It looks, for people that are listening, it looks like um, kind of like a football play. When you're, when you're looking at yeah. football plays, like, you it's know, like a 2D a, image. Like yeah, a it's a 2D image. image, exactly, like X's and O's. But it's the same sort of thing, but with filmmaking, and it shows where the camera's placed, mm -hmm. it shows where the actors are at, the set design of the room. And I'll send that out to all the actors of, here's how I intend for the scene to go, and I'll talk about it, um, and kind of those emotional events of, of the scene, and why the actor's motivated to get up and maybe move over to the window. 
think of Noche, right? When we yeah. have that scene where you ask her a, a point of question where you make her feel uncomfortable and she doesn't want to sit across from you anymore, and so she stands up and walks to the window to try to get more distance away from you. Um, you know, that's all intentional to get her over there. Yeah. And she's not just randomly getting up to leave and walk over by the window. There's a, there's a purpose for her going from point A to point B. I like to have all that in the can, ready to go, so that when we jump on set, it's a matter of um, we talk about it mm -hmm. and go from there. And then depending on who the actor is, we'll rehearse or not. Yeah. I when we just finished Dog Bite Murders and we haven't really gotten into that, but like what I learned with that was ninety percent of the scenes we never rehearsed. That's awesome. Um, everybody came in knowing what my expectations were from that regard with the blocking. Um, I had my lighting diagrams based on that blocking. And so that by the time we got on the set, we would discuss some things. And if the actors had input of maybe they had an idea here or there, they always know that like on set with me, like it, it you check your ego at the door. Because mm. like all of us, we're all just nobodies. Let's be honest here. Right? I like that, yeah. Okay. Like which one of us is Scorsese in the room and which one of us is DiCaprio? Right. None of us, okay? So we're all creating these independent productions. Um, and what I learned in the recording studios or songwriting with fellow songwriters, and I, from personal experience, what killed creativity in the studios or in a songwriting session was the guy with the ego. Mm. And so the moment an ego is brought on the set, it's it'll ruin you. it'll ruin the set. Yeah. And so dog bite murders, you know, with my my writing partner Gregory and I, um we we co directed that film. Um you know, when we had the cast put together in a Facebook group, first thing I mentioned in that group messaging was please check your egos at the door. If you have one, it would be a good time to look in the mirror and realize, you know, it's not welcomed on this set. How is that? And we're here to create. And if and if you're not willing to do that, don't come on our set. Yeah. Because I don't want to deal with your ego. Nobody wants to deal with that. And it's just going to ruin the art. And and that's from, like, being around songwriters. Yeah. I wrote a song with, like, <laughs> three of us co-wrote a song one time. And, and you know, it got pitched around. And it never went anywhere. It was a good song. Um, but one of the songwriters in, in this, you know, us three songwriters that wrote together, he had a hard time with criticism mm. by his fellow writers of maybe like a line or here in the lyric and and it really put a damper on that production to where i never worked with him again and and it was simply because his ego couldn't be checked um it's just so crucial and that's i think the biggest part of directing people again i'm not an actor yeah but i think the biggest part of directing is just being able to talk to people and creating an environment for them to feel vulnerable where they can open up and really emote. I couldn't agree more with that, actually, because as an actor, when I'm on sets, I will still get excited to work with certain directors depending on how they treated us as the actors. If, mm -hmm. they, if, if it was a collaborative effort or if they did have that chip on their shoulder, like, this is my movie, either you do it my mm -hmm. way or get off my set, and I'm like, well, I understand this is your film, but this is also a character that I'm mm -hmm. portraying. This is something that we're working together on. Yeah, You casted me for a reason exactly. because you saw that I had a similar for vision sure. as you. So when 
you did something like send that message out, how was that perceived? Because I imagine like some people, because I've never heard <laughs> yeah. of a director first saying that to the people of like check your ego at the door. Which some people I can imagine like, what's this yeah, guy talking? Like, this guy? Who, yeah. What kind of bad experiences did he have to say that? But other times it's like. Honestly, that's a refresher to be like, you know, this is going to be a set without any egos. If there's going to be egos, you're not welcome on my set. Yeah, I. It, it goes back to the core of that. I've been in, like, recording sessions where it's awkward. You're yeah. in a studio, and there's, like, a music producer by you, and somebody's having a, a, a poor me moment where they're just, like, yeah, it, it, it can kill an entire session. Oh, absolutely. Everybody just has to leave, and back later and maybe it never happens again I've seen great projects uh, just fizzle out mm-hmm. and and you know I, I I take experiences like being in those studios and seeing super talented people letting their egos get in the way and just kill things just kill climate the climate um, and so it's just for me it's so important to just leave that at the door because we're all learning like I said mm-hmm. like who in here is the Scorsese or the DiCaprio we're not um, but I sure as hell can make it as yeah. close as we can if we have the right environment and and it goes back to what you were saying at the beginning with Bradley Pitt right <laughs> you see all these people out there uh, that uh, running joke right I'll never let it go <laughs> that's great um, like it goes back to that whole thing. Like, there's so many super talented actors out mm-hmm. there that don't get or ever see the light of day like that. Like he has been exposed to us. Um, and it's the same thing with the music industry. There's so many talented music artists that I've heard. And I'm just like, how are they not huge? They're so insanely talented. And 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 it, it goes back to this whole thing of like, if we casted you for the role, mm-hmm. we saw something in you. The question is, can we get it out of you again? Mm. Because you did it so good in your in your in your um, audition. Mm-hmm. What do we got to do to get you mentally there, prepared again? And for me, what I found, making sure there's no egos on set, and that it's a welcoming environment for people, has been the best way to allow people to load. And 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 like you're saying, it becomes a collaborative effort at that point. You know, they know. Okay, ultimately, at the end of the day. You know, the director and DP ultimately are going to decide, you know, the framing and composition and the lighting and the, the way the scene's pacing. Um, but if I can get the actors to feel comfortable around me where they might spitball and throw an idea out there that we like, yeah. then it becomes their project, too. I've and honestly, it's cool. You know, I, I, you know, one of the actresses that worked with, with us in Dogbite Murders she has a very emotional scene where she has to testify in court mm. and it's her fifth time testifying she had to t- in real life the actual court case uh, the wife of one of the men that was murdered had to testify in five court trials oh my god and reading the history and reading the newspaper clippings about it described how uh, she got very emotional on the witness stand yeah and it took her eight minutes to gather her composure and we were like well we can't write a scene where she is silent for eight minutes crying yeah so how do we how do we get her there um, and emote that properly and and you'll see in the movie what we did but what was great was in rehe- her and I did a zoom type rehearsal and it wasn't really a rehearsal but it was a uh, more of a hey let's make sure we're on the same page ahead of time because I, I knew it was gonna be so emotional that day that I didn't want to disrupt her focus mm-hmm. getting on set and so ahead of time she threw out the idea of you know I'm reading the script and the attorney is bringing up all these 
items of evidence to show me, and I'm just, you know, spouting my answers back to him, the dog and pony show of, yes, this was so-and-so, you know, this was my husband's gun. Yes, this was my, my husband's gold watch. She said, what if when he goes to get the next item off of the, the desk, I cut him off hmm. mid-sentence and kind of stop him in his tracks to say my next line that's in the script? And I said, oh, my gosh, that's mm. brilliant. I love it. And we went with it. And that was the actor's take on and spin on that scene. And it made the scene. For me, it totally made the scene because then you see the, the attorney's reaction where he's just like, whoa, I was, wow, I didn't expect her to do that to me. She's kind of flipped the script on me. And he knew it ahead of time that we were going to do that. But, like, right. you know, the actual character in the movie realizes, oh, shoot, uh-oh, now I'm having to backpedal because of what she just did. And, and when it becomes a collaboration like that, yeah, that's when the real art starts, you know. Um, you know, when we did we did the courtroom scenes in that movie for four days in an actual courtroom. Wow. Uh-huh. Okay. And, you know, leaving there, it was like summer camp for most people on set. You know, people are like, I don't want to leave. They're like, when am I going to see you again? You know, and <laughs> all of us kind of had this. It felt like a leaving summer camp. For yeah. Everybody. And it was the middle of summer. It was hot in that court, old courthouse. But How long was production for it? Uh, we did 18 days. Oh, okay. 18 total. Not too bad, then, actually. No, 18 days of total principal photography. Yeah, that's not too bad. But I, I can definitely relate to that because I've been on some sets where I'm like, I wish this could go on forever. Like, I love these people, and it's so important to be able to create an environment like that because there is a very certain amount of vulnerability that actors need to have, mm -hmm. and allowing for that collaborative effort, like you said, being able to allow people to knock down their walls enough to be like, actually... With this character, I've been diving a lot into their chemistry and what they might be thinking. What if we add this in there? Because he's feeling or she's feeling this way. And I know personally, if I feel this way, I'm doing this. And it's mm -hmm. like, actually, yeah, I kind of like that. Mm -hmm. And so it allows for that. And so being able to do things like checking your ego at the door or just opening up and be like, look, I want you to dive into your character. I really want to see what you can create out of this, too. Obviously, I know the script yeah. is written, the story is written, like uh, all this, but. If you have any type of things, like, I can't guarantee it'll be in there, but shoot it, shoot yeah. it my way, and we'll, we can talk about it and stuff. And I've seen some of the greatest scenes in the greatest films are from the actor just being their character. They're mm -hmm. not, it's not in the script, like, oh, yeah, it actually wasn't even in the script at all. It was mm -hmm. just me and the, my, my co-star or something just bouncing off of each other, and it just felt right. And mm -hmm. we just kind of went with it. They kept filming, and they're like, that was amazing. Like I was watching um, some clips from The Wolf of Wall Street. The mm -hmm. whole scene with um, Leonardo and um, I am totally spaced on names right now. Um, they they're sitting there, and most of that scene was completely improv when they're talking about whatever they're talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to get too much into that, um, but. The fact that most of that was improv, I'm like that was it, it felt so organic. Yeah. Because it was organic. It was just mm -hmm. the, them getting in the character and just boom, 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 back and forth, and it's like, oh my god, mm -hmm. it was magic. Yeah. And so being able to see that, it was insane. Um, so going from something like Noche, uh -huh. which was like 
a very like low budget short film ultra low budget ultra low and budget you were amazing in that and Thank i appreciate you. you doing that of course it, it was honestly one of still to date one of the best films i've ever been a part of because of the collaborative effort the people i got to meet the people i got to work with the storyline it was an organic story it wasn't something that was just mm-hmm. shot out of nowhere just like you know we're gonna bullshit around and just do this it was something that the the professionalism the collaborative effort the eff- like just everything about it i was just like Honestly, I could have been paid one dollar, zero dollars, <laughs> anything. The fact that I got to be a part of something like that with people that felt so passionate about film, that ins- like that lit even more of a fire. Of like, I want to get on more films like that. I don't mm-hmm. care about pay or anything as long as I can get on more films like yeah, that. Yeah, gain some major experience. Yeah, me. and I mean, it, it gives it just it, it it just helps so much in everybody's career. Um, so going from something like that. Because that was your first short film, right? That was. That, uh-huh. Okay. And then immediately to something that's like 20 steps ahead being the dog bite murders. Yeah. What was the process like of going from something like that to a full-on feature-length film that has incredible attributes that mm-hmm. um, I saw it's already gotten a lot of notoriety from different news sources. You guys mm-hmm. had... Um, some stories and stuff on you guys. I know that mm-hmm. Globe, where you guys filmed it, kind of put a lot of notoriety on you guys. Like, how has all that been yeah, for it's, you? It's been neat. So, this whole thing, you know, I, you know, I would film a corporate video or a nonprofit video or a wedding or, you name it, and and you know, it'd be fun. And you know, you 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 learn exposure. You learn how to frame images and edit um, well and creating a story out of nothing right right in that realm but ultimately my end game was always being narrative filmmaking there's just not money in narrative filmmaking like there is in corporate and nonprofit work right. or if it's the right people in music you there is some money in the music video realm if, if it's actually somebody who's being produced by somebody or managed by a you know a management group um and that stuff is great and all, and I and I love shooting music videos, especially if they're narrative style. Mm. Narrative style, is just, those are my favorite. But um, my end game was always be in the in the actual narrative film realm, mainly telling stories kind of about the human condition. And uh, so for me, like Noche, I put it out there. I had some really good friends through doing music videos. I had some really. Uh, good friends that I had met that owned locations that we had filmed music videos through. Okay. Uh, specifically Molly Cornwell. And I had gotten to know her over the years um, with a, a, a manager producer uh, named Joe Tenney. And, um, and so her and I, her being a location manager and, and also her and, and her significant other owning properties throughout the globe area, these older buildings um, that some are dilapidated um, but they tend to take care of them and restore them somewhat to their, you know, original character. Um, we had gotten to know each other over the years, and, and, you know, she was salt of the earth, Molly was. Just mm. not a bad bone in her body. She's just, I love her like, a, <laughs> like she's my second mother. And she's an amazing woman. And um, she believed me. Um, and, and I threw it out there to her and just said, hey, I'm wanting to show... That I can take what I've learned over all these years of mm-hmm. studying the art of cinematography and and scripts and screenplays, and I want to do a short film 
that just shows here's what I can offer you to people. Right. Okay. Um, and so that's what Noche was. The goal of Noche for me was like, this is a showpiece to show here's what I can give you. Um, like your resume builder. Kind yeah. Of. Yep. And okay. sometimes passion projects like that are the reason why you get the next thing. Oh, absolutely. You know, every time I've done a passion project over the years, it's led to business coming through the doors. Um, and so uh, that's what Noche was for me. And I was like, okay, what do I, I want to write a, you know, something here. I got to write something, you know, and it comes from my time writing songs, you know, writing songs. So I understand the concept of trying to compel people to listen to something or watch something with script. Um, and so I wrote that script based on a story in my own family history because I didn't have to worry about rights, securing rights to the story or anything. I just mm. grabbed something from my own family history. Um, all my family were pioneers that settled the wild, you know, the wild west days out here in Arizona and Utah and all of these these parts. And you know, you know the story. But yeah. um, and so for me, it was just to get something on paper in a script, deliver it with a visual product, and then say, "Here's what I can offer you." And and so that's what that was. And and what was beautiful about Noche was that little short film led to so many actors wanting. To jump on board for whatever came next. Mm. So anytime I'd reach out to an actor, that I'd be like, I don't know if they're gonna if they have any interest. <laughs> I would just send them a few frame grabs or still images from Noche, and they'd go, Oh my gosh. Yeah. 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 No. Send me the sides, and let's take a look. So um, that it was just one of those things. I uh, I I we did Noche, and one of the background actors that I didn't know him from Adam that showed up during the scene where Noche dies of the, the acid, carbolic acid ingestion in the hallway, right? In that rooming house. Um, one of the, the background actors that showed up that day um, reached out to me, you know, later, uh, probably two or three weeks later, and said, hey, um, you know, I was on your set um, for Noche, and I just played a, uh, a hangman in a Halloween-type, uh, event that goes on every year in Globe. Um, it's like, I, I believe it's Ghost of Globe Tour. Mm. And so they have like local actors and local people play like a role of some famous historical person in the Globe area. Um, and you go to like the historical site and that person's there dressed in the wardrobe and they talk to you. And it's a Halloween type thing. Okay. And it's really cool. Okay. And you go to all these old buildings, they're kind of haunted, creepy old buildings. You know, the Ghost Hunter shows have been there a million times watching. Mm -hmm looking for ghosts and stuff. Um, anyways, and so his name was Gregory Shoemaker. And so he was that background actor. And, and uh, he reached out and, and said, you know, I, I enjoyed your set so much. You know, I felt very welcome. He said, would you have any interest in learning more about this story that I played? Um, the Hangman, I read this story at this, at this Ghost of Globe tour. Um, I played a Hangman. And he said, you know, I only had a, a few paragraphs to read from. But uh, apparently, you know, in 1910, in 1914, there was a, a hangman uh, that had to hang um, an individual for murder in Arizona. Hmm. And on the gallows, the, the guy getting hung turned to the hangman and yelled at him and was upset that the marshal wasn't hanging him, but was having this local town folk do the hanging. Really? Mm-hmm. And so he, he was upset that the marshal didn't have the courage to hang him himself, but that he hired a local guy to do it. And so Gregory played that local guy, the hangman, in, in that reenactment thing for Halloween. And he said, you know, it's pretty crazy just reading a little bit into the story. 
the guy turned to the hangman and said, I'll see you in hell, but before you come to be with me, I hope you choke to death. I was like, wow, that's a line, like, you can't write. Like, <laughs> wow. What a line, right? What yeah. a line. So um, I said, yeah, let's let's explore this further. And so from Noche, I was using Noche to research my own family history. You know, my family has quite a bit of journals and stuff over the years that I was able to write a lot of that screenplay for. Um, but where I found a lot of stuff was in the state archives, mm. on the Arizona State Archives. And so, you know, I, I told Gregory, I said, why don't, we, why don't we get in the state archives and just start looking for articles for this story? This is pretty interesting. And so, you know, we spent a couple really late nights on Zoom calls, both online, digging through the state archives, searching keywords, and we found a dozen or two dozen articles that were primary sources, you know, contemporary sources of these events that took place between 1910 and 1914. And, and um, so we went straight to the source, you know, it was really neat to, to find these very descriptive um, newspaper articles that had quotes, like direct quotes from people. And we were able to weave some of those direct quotes into the script. And so what our goal with the story was initially just to do like a five or ten minute short film as another show piece. Yeah. And as we dug into it further, it just, it was like, you have to turn this into a full length feature. And so that's what we did. And so we spent the next like two months, almost every night, late at night, basing our screenplay on this variety of uh, articles that we found, these newspaper clippings, and also the... Um, the uh, court records we were able to find from it. And so we got like real witness testimony and we're able to put like large portions of witness testimony in, in the script direct from the source, you know. And so it's almost like a historical, it's a fiction, but it's like very closely, I mean, it's, it's a, you know, based on a true story, you know. Right. Um, which is really cool. We're recording still, yep, yeah. Yeah, I just want to make sure that this thing didn't die out or anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Gregory and I, you know, it was great. Gregory and I um, started writing that, and pretty soon we had like 50 or 60 pages, and we mm. thought it was wrapped in, in a bow. And just over time reading, it was like, man, I just felt like there were certain little things we needed to add to it. And so pretty soon it turned into a 70-page script. And so, <laughs> and, it, and you're like, oh, 70 pages, so what is that, a minute a page? So 70 minute movie it's like no this is a drama mm -hmm. um, the pages are very dense so the dialogue is very dense on some of these pages yeah and and so like you know we're pacing at about a minute 15 a minute 20 a page right now and so it's it's right now I've got it edited about 110 minutes in right now and I've still got 20 pages to edit <laughs> in, the, in the cut so I, I think without credits we're probably looking at 90 minutes for the film plus right. credits maybe an hour 35 hour 40 Decent size. Yeah, yeah, it's it's right there in that pocket where you want it to be. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just one thing after another. So, you know, we we wrote the script, um, and the cool thing about it, a lot of the buildings where the story really happened are still there. Do you guys get to use yeah. those buildings? Oh yeah. Wow. And so I had, you know, I had developed this relationship with Molly over the years, um, from doing music videos in her neck of the woods. On at her locations and 
reached out to her and to figure out what it's going to take, you know, budget-wise, and how how do we get this all squared away to be able to film in these locations and basically reenact things that really happened in these locations. And I mean, it looks like it, it's exciting because those locations there in Globe are so unique, and if you get the chance to film there, it's it's amazing. All mm -hmm. these old buildings, you know, turn of the century, 1900s construction. Um, it was really neat to, uh, it was kind of eerie too, like being in the jail cells where these guys were held. It was kind of eerie, thinking, you know, these guys are in there for four years. Mm -hmm. um, and But but we got to, uh, you know, shoot in all those locations and, and, and get all that put together. But yeah, it, we went from writing the script to, uh, you know, the next phase was um, let's get a cast put together. We, we started talking budget and funding and we got a couple of private investors that had read the script um, and had reached out and had interest in it uh, without us having to offer. Or oh, without, so they, re they found it and they reached out to I you? Had known, I had known them. Okay. Um, yeah, but I had sent them the script and without asking for them to help fund it, they reached out and said, what's it gonna take to fund it? Can you crunch the numbers? So we ended up having to do like I feel like, and I never want to do it again. But like having to uh, be like a line director, basically, like or a line producer, like uh, having to itemize every little detail of what it's going to take mm. cost wise to do this sort of thing, and then taking that number to them, and then seeing if it's going to work or not. Um, yeah, line producing, it's amazing for people who love that, and I have a huge respect for it, but. What is, what is the it. position of line producer? They're looking at like the day-to-day -day operations of, of, of budgets, the fiscal side of things, and, okay. and a lot of other logistics. But they're 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 kind of boots on the ground. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Day to day. But you know, it, for me, it takes away from being able to work on the creative side of right. the, the the blocking, lighting, and shooting. You know, is ultimately you know, is ultimately what I at my core is why I do this. Um, every day on set was a joy just to hit record. Because of the amount of work it took just to get to the point to hit record, on the front end in the pre-production, and the weeks leading up to you know shoot days, um, to where when you actually were about to, you know when you had slate rolled and we're gonna run roll slate, I would take a big sigh and just go wow we, we did it we're here we're, we're actually we're doing hitting this. record and we're doing it the right way, you know this isn't just run and gun we're doing this the right way, um, everything's ironed out and let's make some magic now. So it, 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 it took, you know, we, we started writing that last October. Sorry, October 2022. We had that script wrapped up in a bow by about December and then continued to just polish the script even further. Mm. Um, and we were writing little things here and there into the script up through June of this past year, Dang. a month and a half before production. There were little things. It was like, okay, now that we have an idea of this and who we got here, I, I, it's so necessary we write this little scene in now. We didn't initially have it in there, but now that we have this person doing this part, yeah. I've been dying to add this into the script. Let's do it. And and it was those little finishing touches to it that just added so much. But yeah, once we got the blessing from you know we weren't greenlit yet, um, you know officially signed with contracts in place, but we did uh, have a verbal green light. So we started casting people, and that's when that casting process started. And What's exciting about Dog Bite Murders is we tried to take the whole history of this event, mm -hmm. and and I I, sh I apologize I should have started out by prefacing what the Dog Bite Murders is. Um, oh yeah, <laughs> but Dog Bite Murders is a 
based based on a true story in 1910 um, to 1914 in the Arizona Territory as it transitioned into statehood. Um, and you had two army cavalry officers um, that had deserted the army and were up near Globe, Arizona, um, working at a station called Tuttle Station, which was like a, a station where you transported uh, goods and services through and you would swap horses out. So mm. if your horses were exhausted on the trails, you'd stop at like Tuttle Station and exchange horses out for different draft stock that, that your, uh, your employer had there okay. stationed. And so these two army deserters were working Tuttle Station mm. after they had deserted the 5th Cavalry. And uh, long story short, two hunters were given permission to stay there at the cabin to hunt and, and stay there at night. Um, they claimed, the two army soldiers, claimed that they had to kill those two hunters um, because they got in a fight over a dog and that it was self-defense. And they claimed that one of the army deserters' dogs bit one of the hunters on the leg and that the hunter kicked the hell out of the dog and it led to a melee. Wow. Over a dog. So the name <laughs> Dog Bite Murders is why that name is that. Um, I should have prefaced this whole thing with that. Um, but what's exciting about it is, one, well, one, this isn't exciting, but it's very disturbing. It, they they mutilated these bodies. I mean, it wasn't just like shoot them and leave. It was disturbing reading the reports of the witnesses that found the bodies and what they did. And this is the people that kicked the dog? Yeah, uh, the hunters. Yeah. Yeah. Um, got killed. Okay. Yeah, if you can read the history. It's yeah. not like a spoiler alert here. Just go read about yeah. the story, and you'll you'll you can spoil alert yourself. <laughs> um, but so we 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 took that story and um, made it into this journey. There's so many different people within this story that are exciting to learn about. That are all real historical figures in Arizona's history. You have a sheriff named Sheriff Thompson, um, who was the longest running sheriff in Arizona history. Really? Uh-huh. He, I believe it was eight terms he served. And, you know, you read about him and his story and his history, and I've read books about him. Just wild, the things he, he you know, from the 1890s to the 1910s, what he experienced in Arizona, that shift um, in the territory to statehood and everything in between from riding horses to driving in cars. You know, what a what a change of events. And, and all, the, all the people along the way that he arrested or apprehended, mm -hmm. um, this was the one story of his career that stuck out the most. And it's amazing when you read all the stories of his career, and you're like, holy cow, how did he not die in the process of pursuits? And this story is really interesting because, you know, you, you're not only seeing uh, the two guys on the run who fled after the murders, um, but you're seeing the story being woven in with the sheriff and what it took to apprehend these guys, which was so cool in itself. Um, we had a 19, uh, 1910s Ford Model T. No yeah. way. Yeah. And so. How did you guys get a hold of that? Uh, through Molly, like I said. Molly. Really? Good old Molly knows Was it everybody. like still operating? Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. It drives. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No it drives. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so when you read the history, um, the sheriff had a 1907 Cadillac. So we couldn't find a Cadillac. We found a Model T, right? Close yeah. enough. Um, and so he borrowed a Cadillac from an 
old timer and globe to pursue these guys because they were already a day behind them. You know, these guys fled on the horses, right? And they were already a day behind. And so, you know, they had a, a 1907 Cadillac that the sheriff borrowed, and they drove from Globe and apprehended these guys in Holbrook, Arizona. And the only reason they caught up to them was because of the automobile. Yeah. You know, they were able to get there quick enough, and they apprehended them before they could hop a train to, to head back up to, to the north. Wow. Right? And so we, we, we actually wrote out scenes of the pursuit with the vehicle. Uh-huh. And, and so it was really exciting. So you get this whole story of the sheriff. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's like a, every great r- road trip, right? I, before we uh, had secured the car, we didn't have the car scene, one of the car scenes in there. It was just implied that they took a car. Mm-hmm. Once we got the car secured uh, and then we were going to use it, it was like, we got to write that scene in there. <laughs> like every great road trip you've ever been on with friends, right? Yeah. You have great memories. You always have those fun chats on a road trip with friends, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's what we did. So, like, there's a scene where they're on the road cruising and they're going down the hot, down the dirt road in this in this old model T and just chatting it up like they're on a road trip together him and his deputy and the guy who owns that station where all the murders happen and and so you you're getting to see like the depths of these different characters and they're talking kind of about their background a little bit so that's really neat and then interwoven in all this you have this lead character William Stewart mm. played by Dexter Maslin and he's our lead and he's incredible actor so humble no ego just a joy to work with Mm. and um he's in a new movie with uh uh, will ferrell and jamie fox uh strays that movie that was out in theaters it premiered i think oh yeah yeah the animated thing or uh the dog one yeah Yeah, yeah. with the dogs that talk yeah yeah he's one of the dog owners so okay so dexter plays one of the dog owners the dog he's the dexter plays the uh the dog owner to like a, I think it's a Labrador or a Golden Retriever. Uh, I actually haven't Anyways, seen it. Anyways, yeah, myself, it's but that's that's cool that yeah, he, he got to work on something like that. He's wonderful. He's he's an amazing actor. Um, did you reach out to him or did he audition for you? Good question. Um, he he reached out to me initially. Okay. Not about this project. He didn't know about it, but we had a mutual friend that I had already worked with on another project that said, "Hey, you should reach out to Clint and see if he has anything coming up." And it was just perfect. Mm. The timing for this but yeah we could talk about that but anyways real quick uh, but yeah that there's that story of you know you have the sheriff but the, yeah. the main focal point of the story is the human condition of this lead actor Dexter who plays William Stewart who's one of the men on the run yeah and his partner in crime John Goodwin which is Gregory Shoemaker who co-wrote it with me Greg is the the supporting role okay in this and so um, you we took this story from the point of view of William Stewart. So that's Dexter. Okay. okay? Um, and we took his court testimony. He went on the witness stand and testified in his own on his own behalf in court. And so we took his actual testimony verbatim and framed the whole screenplay around his point of view. So that's when I say it's based on a true story. Yeah. It's based on William Stewart's point of view of what's the truth here. Gotcha. Is it really the truth? I don't know. And so we could be biased, but it, yes, yeah. He claimed his innocence up until his last days on this earth. He claimed his innocence, and mm-hmm. that he was manipulated into the whole thing and got framed. And I'm, yeah, you could say spoiler alert. Just go look online. Like, <laughs> I'm not. There's nothing here yeah. you can't find online. Um, and so we really drove that home from his point of view because it makes a good movie. Yeah. Instead of you know, we took his portion of the historical truth. And, and ran with it because it makes a compelling historical 
a, a compelling movie. Right. And it's interwoven with a lot of historical facts in there. Um, and, and he did a wonderful job of interpreting that, act, that character, William Stewart. Um, and then on top of that, you're like, oh, cool. So it's a story about this guy, and he's, a, uh, he's on the run, and he's, he's not a partner in crime, but he's being framed, you know? And then it goes even deeper, and we pull off another, pull back another layer here, and we talk about the attorney that represented them. And there was a very famous attorney in the territory um, in the 1890s through the 1910s named Thomas Flanagan, and he represented you know hundreds of people from from Tombstone to the Globe mm -hmm. and all over. Uh, very well respected attorney, um, but he represented these boys, these two uh, defendants. And they initially were sentenced to life in prison at, at the Yuma prison, in the territorial prison. Um, the attorney, his attorney, uh, was up late one night with another attorney who told him you should appeal the cases to federal court because it was in the wrong jurisdiction. These cases should have been tried in federal court because it occurred on tribal land, on Apache tribal land, the murders, and that they were tried in territorial court. Hmm. And so kind of put the bug in his ear, you know, and he appealed, he, he, he um, let that other attorney start publishing articles about why it should be overturned or retried. Yeah. And the U.S. prosecutor, Morrison, read those articles and decided, yeah, okay, let's retry it. So they retried the cases a third and fourth time in court. And in the, in the third case, um, Goodwin, the other defendant, was mm -hmm. found guilty and sentenced to hang. So he went from life in prison, which in those days was usually about 15 years, to sentenced to hang. And then the other defendant, William Stewart, which is Dexter, our lead, mm -hmm. he went to trial on the fourth case, and he was sentenced to life in prison again, but he was sentenced to life in prison in a federal penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh. So he got shipped to Georgia. Okay. And then while this is all going on, that that prosecutor had him brought back to stand trial for the other murder because two men were murdered yeah so he brought him back to stand trial a second time in federal court and in that federal court in that second trial he was found guilty mm. and sentenced to light or sentenced to hang also and were they both hung in arizona uh -huh. they were the okay. last hanging one of the last hangings in arizona i believe they were unsanctioned meaning the governor governor hunt didn't approve of them molly correct me if i'm wrong but i'm pretty sure they were unsanctioned hangings Okay. They just kind of let Globe do what they did with it. Wow. Um, correct me if I'm wrong there, but I'm pretty sure that's what it was. I'd have to double check the the, the sources. Um, so you had this story playing here, right? And we're mm -hmm. taking his point of view of him being the innocent one here, and he was just framed by his partner. Right. And he's going to go to death because of his partner's actions, and that he's innocent the whole time. Or is he? And so the whole goal of the screenplay was to not make you think he's innocent yeah because you you see stuff in this screenplay in this movie where you go i don't know maybe he's lying his through his teeth on the witness stand maybe he did do it and he's just a good liar mm -hmm. so our goal wasn't to direct you in one way or another to make up a decision of who's is he innocent or not our hope was you leave this movie still wondering what really happened and that was the same thing that happened with noche you know? too because mm -hmm. like at the end like you don't actually know what happened and that's the cool thing about some of these historical mm -hmm stories and movies is like mm -hmm. there is something that happened so there is already a story there mm -hmm. but because it happened so long ago there's no way to go back and actually see what happened and like obviously records were much different 
different then. There was no surveillance. There was no mm -hmm. video. There was nothing like that. So you have to go based off of these historical documents and writings and mm -hmm. um, publishings and stuff. And a lot of it could be biased because totally we, like there's bias in all of it. Yeah, I'm sure. So there's no way to actually tell like this is what happened. Mm -hmm. Like this, you can only tell the story from someone's point point mm -hmm. of view based off of the publications. Which mm -hmm. that's the cool thing is like even though it is something that happened, you don't know specifically exactly. what truly exactly. happened. You don't know like okay, well. Because, like, obviously now the justice system has a very different thing to where it's, like, only certain people can testify. Mm -hmm. um, it can't be biased people. Mm -hmm. It can't be this. Back then, they didn't have any of that kind of no, stuff. No, it was a territory. Things were just, oops, things were different back then. Yeah. They, they were the same, but different. Same, same, but different. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really cool to get to kind of tell a story that did happen, but you still get the mystery of, like, okay, but what actually happened? Yeah. And, and, and you see... My hope with writing in that character, William Stewart, was that we portrayed him in a way that you're left thinking he has the capability to do something like that. But did he? But did he? Yeah. And that was kind of the goal with his character, and Dexter did a wonderful job of portraying that, where yeah. you, you love the guy in this movie, and you don't want to see him go to his ultimate doom. But then you also, in the back of your mind, our hope is that you question it, like, shoot, maybe yeah. he did. And, and I don't want to give away too much, but there's moments like he met with a priest the night before he was sentenced to hang. And the priest went to his grave, not disclosing if he confessed anything or not. But we wrote in a scene with him and the priest talking. Mm, kind of just going off the and, depiction. Yeah, and here's what's so wild is, is this case made national headlines in 1910. And the other defendant, played by Gregory, he got a 60-day stay of execution, meaning he was held off the gallows for 60 days um, while they sorted things out. And guess who granted that? The President of the United States of America. President Woodrow Wilson personally got involved with this case. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, so it, it got big. <laughs> it got huge. And he signed off on a 60-day stay of execution. He didn't do it for William Stewart, though. And William Stewart's the one who claimed his innocence. Mm. And we have this wonderful scene in the jail with the priest when his attorney comes in to inform him that he did not get his stay of execution. And there's a beautiful scene there where you see two polar opposites of William Stewart. Mm. And, and so that was kind of the goal of that character, to develop him like that in that way. Now, when you think, like, okay, everything's developing around that, you know, I talked about how all this, they were initially tried in the territorial courts, sentenced to life, which was usually 15 years. Yeah. You know, they were usually, a lot of guys got out after 15 years in, in the territorial prison. Um, why didn't they just let it be? And, you know, you think back. When we were researching, we found an article in the 1950s by a magazine that interviewed that attorney that represented him in the initial trials in the territorial cases. He was okay. an old man. And he was living in the Pioneer's Home, which is in northern Arizona, in Prescott. It's right by Whiskey Row in Prescott, Arizona. It's still there. It's still being used in, as an old folks' home, still hmm. to this day. And in 19, it was in the 1950s, so he's an older man now. He died, I think, in 1953 or 55, this attorney. Okay. So he was very old at this point. And in this magazine article, there's a picture of him in his black suit, 
his spittoon, his wood rocking chair, and his pipe. He smoked a pipe. And he's sitting in his room at, the, at this um, old folks home being interviewed. And in this article, it talks about how, you know, there's all these variety of people who live here at the Pioneer's home. Right. Uh, even the man who claimed he was Billy the Kid uh, oh, lived wow. here in his old age. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, and you have um, Big Nose Kate, all these famous people from the Wild West days that retired to this old folks home in, in Prescott called the Pioneer's Home. And one of those people that retired there was Thomas Flanagan, this attorney. And um, in this article, the one case it talks about is this case. So let's think about it. 1914 is when these cases wrapped up and the hangings happened. Mm-hmm. This is now 1953, I believe. So what is that? 39 years later and they're still talking about this? I thought that was really peculiar that 39 years later, the one thing the journalist is asking this attorney as an old man in his old folks' home is about this case. The 40-year-old case that... Uh-huh. And he wow. had represented hundreds of people. And we have actual quotes from him in that article. And he says, I'm free to talk about those clients at this point. Um, and he says, I believe those boys, that it was a fight over a dog, and that they did have to defend themselves. Mm. <laughs> and so you got this whole story, <laughs> right, with him. Um, and so we were like, okay, we got to weave this story of him in there. Right. And so what this movie does is it takes you from 1954 into 1910, back into 1954, back to 1912, back to 1954, back to 1914. And you're seeing a young Thomas Flanagan played by Robert Emery, who played Noche. Mm -hmm. He plays the young Thomas Flanagan. And then Michael Harrelson, uh, he plays the elderly Thomas Flanagan. Okay. And he's recounting this story. And he's recounting it to an orderly, which is like a person who takes care of old people in those old folks' homes. And we had uh, uh, William Horton play the orderly. He's, we figured 1950s, how fitting would it be to have an African-American man be the orderly that's taking care of this old curmudgeon? And so you have this beautiful back and forth between them in the 1950s recounting the story because he's still stewing over it 39 years later. Right. And it's just haunted him 39 years later. That was my take when I read that magazine article. It's like, wow, 39 years later, and he's still talking about this story. Right. And, and what's so interesting is that article talked about how, like, uh, a lot of these people that live in this old folks' home are very closed off to outsiders, and they don't talk to you. But if you take them down to Whiskey Row and get them a little intoxicated, they might tell you a story <laughs> or two. And so I was like, okay, we got to have whiskey in here. So we yeah. have a whole scene where he goes to Whiskey Row to the bar. To drink and he gets poked fun of by old timers they're making fun of him about this story and he leaves and comes back to his his room and he finally breaks down like has a mental not breakdown but like a mental emotional event where he finally just lays it all out there to this orderly to vent mm. and we go back to 1914 and and you 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 see like it traced through him and and what, how it impacted his life too, this whole event, and not just the, the four men that were ultimately killed in this whole thing. The two that were murdered and the two that were hung. And then he had this, this attorney that for 40 more years was burdened with this story. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here's why we went down that road of him being burdened. Because Molly, her significant other, Tom, he's an attorney in Globe. He's been an attorney in Globe since the 70s, I believe. Oh, wow. And there was an ongoing joke when he was a young practicing attorney in Globe 
was don't be like that old attorney that got his clients hung. <laughs> no. So it just kind of all looped yes. itself back around. Yes. Isn't Dang. that crazy? And so there was a running joke in town about this attorney that got his clients hung. And, and it was almost like an old folklore. Like, yeah. oh, supposedly there was this attorney that did that. And, and it was, you know, ultimately Tom and Molly that resurrected this whole story because it had kind of just disappeared from the zeitgeist, from the, from the public knowledge, the story for all these years. Right. And it wasn't until Molly and Tom had dug up some stuff on this case and they didn't know a ton about it yet. And then somebody who had the actual nooses used to hang these guys brought the nooses by. And so Molly and Tom were able to get those nooses, and they're now on display at the Gel and Globe. So if you go to the Gel and Globe, there's an actual display, like a uh, like a shadow box that has the pictures of the two uh, criminals and their nooses that were used to hang them. And those are the actual nooses. Mm-hmm. That is that is incredible to have an artifact like that mm-hmm. that has such significance to Arizona. Here's what gets more wild. So this story's been very serendipitous. We we were in the middle of production. We did that Fox 10 News thing. With yeah. Fox 10 News, they came out, and they were so generous. They, they reached out to us to want to run a story on it. And a gal passing through um, Globe, or through Arizona, passing through, looked up her family history to learn about her great-uncle who had gotten murdered in 1910. Right? I feel like I know where this is going. Uh-huh. And she looked his name up. His name is Fred Kibb, or Fred Kibby is how they pronounce it. In the movie, we went with Kibb because we didn't know the pronunciation when we started production. Um, and this was her, like, great or second great uncle that got murdered. He was one of the men that got murdered. Uh, was he one of the ones that were hung or one of the, the other two that were? The hunters that were murdered. Oh, okay. Yep, so he was the victim. Oh victim, I say in air quotes. We don't know. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, you know, and so she reached out, and Molly was our point of contact at this point for, for that news source, and uh, she reached out to Molly, and Molly and Gregory were able to meet up with her and show her the jail, show her all these things with her husband, and then it wound up that her um, her son um, is a composer for The Voice. Oh my gosh. <laughs> And so, you know, we uh, we had some reaching out with him. Uh, we actually ended up knowing some of the same people from the music side, from music industry and yeah. music videos. Um, and it's exciting, but we've actually brought him on as the composer and arranger for the movie. So he's doing a full musical score for a movie about his ancestor. Oh, that is incredible. Isn't that wild? Wow. What a small world. So we're pretty humbled to have him on board. He's, it's exciting. Um, it's it's kind of gone full circle. So yeah. We're really hopeful for this project. Um, we're hopeful once we get it completed and wrapped in a bow, we can try to get this to the proper distributor, the, r- the proper source to get this story truly told. Um, Are you guys looking to put it like on streaming services? That's the goal. Yeah? Yeah. 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 You guys should do like a, a private premiere in Arizona like yeah. some of the theaters we are yeah okay. and we're, we're certainly going to do a private premiere uh, in Globe because we have to it's yeah Globe. Um, at the theater there we had hoped to try to get something coordinated there we've had some rumblings about up in Prescott since that takes a major role in this too and then Florence um, where we did a lot of the filming too and then a lot of the actors have been out of Tucson uh, that are in the film so we're thinking about doing a private premiere there too 
Um, so it's, it's going to be excited. We, we, uh, we cast 35 people in this with speaking roles. That's there incredible. were a lot of speaking roles. And, um, you know, budget-wise, we were able to give everybody a fair day rate. Yeah? Yeah. That is incredible. Great. So everybody on set had a very fair day rate. We came in at just under union pay. We're a non-union film, independent. Yeah. But we came in just shy of union rates. Um, and and I, I think that helped. I wanted the actors to know they were valued. Yeah. Although we're not a huge production, huge, massive budget, we're going to give, you know, that make it production value and make it worth their time. And hopefully this is a piece in their portfolio that they never forget about. And hopefully this is that piece for them that really uh, springboards them to the next huge opportunity. Did the strike or anything with SAG affect production at all for you guys? It didn't because it was non-union. Okay. And so every, everybody that was on board in this project was non-union. Okay, so even having, because I know that affected a lot it of did. different projects and stuff. Even for non-union stuff, I know there were some stipulations that there were, and so like I was even worried about like your production and other yeah. people's productions that were happening. I'm like, oh man, like these are incredible stories that need to get told. So I was like, oh man, like I don't know if the writers strike or the SAG strike or anything like that is going because I know that delayed so many productions. Yeah. So that's awesome though that it didn't really have. Yeah, I'm, I'm not in the writers guild. Yeah. Um, maybe after this project I will be. No, yeah. I'm just joking. That would be wonderful. I think it's a it's a special script. We we put a lot of into it, Gregory and I, and we did a great job. I feel writing together and really finding at the core just the human condition. Mm-hmm and telling a story based on that. And it's true. It's a real story. There's parts of this film that you go, did that really happen? Yeah. Like, yeah, it really did. Like, you can't make this stuff up. And so, um, yeah, the the unions did not affect this and the strikes, and I supported the strikes, and what they were striking for was important. Mm -hmm. uh, very important things that they were striking over. Um, I'm not part of a union. Um, again, like I said, we're a bunch of nobodies, right? Yeah. We're all a bunch of nobodies. Everybody's a nobody. <laughs> and so um, it did not affect us in that regard because um, I'm not affiliated with any of those. And then we put this out there as a non-union film to begin with. And I ended up doing all my own grip and electric. So I didn't have to hire out anybody that was like union okay. for grip and electric. Um, what was exciting is we brought in interns from the conservatory where I went to school 15 years ago for audio to do boom operating. Oh, wow. So okay. We had three different boom ops that were doing sound mixing and boom op for us on set, and it gave them the opportunity. I know when I was in, in school there, like I would have died to have an opportunity to go on a film set mm -hmm. like this, where we had really good caliber actors, great production value, the lighting on perfect, light, you know, perfect locations and set design and wardrobe. I can't tell you how... I have a closet just full of wardrobe. <laughs> like, I have so much wardrobe at my house. It's yeah. not even funny. I still have that, and, suit, that suit from Noche. Yeah, yeah. See, we, we, we found so much unique stuff. And, and what was even cool, too, was a lot of the actors had their own stuff. So, mm. you know, I would say about half the production was uh, the main cast was came with their own really nice wardrobe, and the other half we had to provide wardrobe for and, and props and, and set design. I mean, it... I, I feel like I'm like a hoarder of that stuff now. <laughs> um, I've got a room just full of like props and wardrobe and set design pieces because it's so crucial to making the image feel volumetric mm -hmm. and making it feel authentic to the time period where you really feel like you're there. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, we were fortunate to not have the union strikes affect us because so much was done in-house. That's incredible. Yeah. 
So what what's next for Clinton? Um, well, I hope this is a springboard to bigger things. Yeah. Um, this project's super special, and I, I I believed in it from day one that it was worth my time mm. to to put into this project because again, my time is like my kids' time. Like I'm missing out on kids. Yeah. Some of those times. Right. Um, and so was it worth my time to truly do this project? And it was. And, and I hope this is a springboard to even more projects of this caliber and style. Mm-hmm. I just love historical pieces. And I and I, I would totally do modern stuff, too. Um, but if the story's right, a yeah. compelling story, sign me up to either you know direct or DP. Um, what was cool about this project was I did like a hybrid type thing where, um, you know, I took a the DP role and ran with it. And then I took a, you know, a, a hybrid director role and, and Gregory and I worked really well together, kind of um, spitballing back and forth ideas um, to where I, I, I would love to continue forward working projects where I have a role in directing hmm. while being able to control the cinematography side. Because the cinematography is just so crucial Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I really do enjoy the directing side with it in tandem. And it's it's hopeful. There's series like uh, 1883 and 1923, some of these westerns uh, that Taylor Sheridan has done, where he's kind of uh, going against the grain of Hollywood in how they're doing their sets, uh, kind of like what we did. They're the directors of those two shows, which are so popular. Uh, the directors also do cin- the cinematography. Right. Uh huh. They're doing a kind of a hybrid director cinematographer, uh, director DP role, and so it's cool. It's hopeful to see these major productions like a Taylor Sheridan production, where you have uh, them taking on both roles, um, and it not being so rigid to where you're the gaffer, you're you're electric, you're yeah. you know you're the uh, you're 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 the director, you're the you're the DP, you're you're this, you're that, and it's and and I get it for some productions you have to have that for right structure and order but it is cool to see success like 1883 1923 where they're taking more of that hybrid approach um to the game but i yeah i hope this uh this project leads to just more projects with fellow artists um it's a business right. i'm really hoping this can open up some doors to do even bigger projects bigger budgets um and you know, with what we did on this project, I, I think it'll it'll show. I uh, you know, there's several things I, in the back of my head that I'm writing in my head right now. Yeah. Um, you know, an ultimate ga- end game for me would be a story about my own father. Really? Uh huh. And it would have to be like a six part series type thing, and it would require major funding to do something like that, or else just don't do it at all. Right. But my dad has that like Forrest Gump type story. Interesting. Okay. Um, where you, you, the the stories are taller than life, you know. <laughs> Lar- sorry, larger than life, not taller. The stories are larger than life with him. He uh, he was a he his draft number was coming up in the Vietnam War, so he ended up going into Vietnam. Um, had a wild experience in Vietnam in special forces, mm. and it affected him, and it affected my family growing up greatly. To where like our world revolved around Vietnam, and wow. I joke with my mom now that PTSD was the third wheel in their relationship. Oh my gosh, that and, that would be an incredible. And so story. I I would love, and I've started writing kind of like a, a 
a treatment on it. Um, but I would love, and this is kind of a big picture thing. It might take a few years to really get all these episodes squared away. But I would love to write a story, whether it's a ghost write, mm-hmm. without his real name in there or not, um, but telling his story of Vietnam and what the effects of it and what it did to him and how he lived through that. You you hear some of these stories from him, and it's just wild. Mm-hmm. You know, he was special forces. It would be a unique per- perspective to the Vietnam War because all of my dad's soldiers were Vietnamese. My dad was a, a uh, an advisor to the South Vietnamese Army. Oh, wow. And so my dad's soldiers, the vast majority, were South Vietnamese. And you never see a Vietnam movie portrayed with South Vietnamese soldiers right. as the good guys, right? Right. Air quotes, good guys. <laughs> and so the interaction between him and the local population, fighting in tandem together, and what that did, and things from him being a tunnel rat, climbing in tunnels, yeah, to the trauma of all that, to missing in action, to getting hit by a landmine, just the most wild stories and I have all this documented before he died he died in 2010 he had Agent Orange he got exposed to Agent Orange Okay. the chemicals that they sprayed on the jungles to kill the jungles and it it killed him ultimately Um, he was just poisoned from that stuff Um, before he died I sat him down and recorded him telling every story of Vietnam with all the photos he had hundreds of photos from the war Mm. and I sat him down and he told every story to every photo and so that's my basis for writing a screenplay, like a six-part screenplay, is based on that, but tying it into the 1980s and early 90s as a child with my dad. That'd be incredible. And the effects of the 1960s. Like, gr- growing up, my dad had, like, flashbacks on us. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And, like, I, I can remember going into, like, the bedroom and he looking up thinking I was the VC, the Viet Cong, uh. at 6 in the morning and just going into a full-blown... Uh, uh, flashback, yelling at me, swearing at me, telling me to come at him, calling me VC, screaming at me. Really? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And my mom waking up and chucking a pillow at him to get him to realize what's going on. And then him just melting, crying, and oh sobbing, and God. running over to grab me, you know, to say sorry. And that's like 2005. Oh and that stuff's God. still happening, you know? And, and so... You know, you see the effects of all that. It's just so wild. And, yeah. and I don't want to give too much away. There's so many stories that are, like, golden that you you could never write this as a script. It, it, it was just too good to be true, and it's true. And and I've got some full circle type stories from him that 20 years later things happening that went completely full circle from the war. Um, mm. And so, yeah, that's something on my horizon I would love to do. Um, but that's an undertaking and a huge, massive project. Um, but yeah, it would it would circle around the concept of, of his experiences there and PTSD as a third will, um, in his relationship with his family and his wife. Um, but it it's got great moments too. There's I have stories of him and recordings of him telling a story where he's sobbing in one story, telling about one of his best friends getting killed, mm. and then the next story he's laughing so hard because <laughs> of something funny that happened in the war. You know, and so it would be a great, this great series of like, you would see it all, all the different emotions of humanity, right. of the human condition. That, um, that's, you know, the a huge, big project down the road I'd love to do. That's going to require stuff like projects like this, mm-hmm. to where actually people take you seriously to do something like that. Um, 
there's some stuff I'm exploring with uh, some fellow actors of your guys's um, on writing some treatments to some other stuff. Okay. Um, and then this 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 film is a business. It's its own separate LLC. Okay. And so you know it's ultimately another business to have to run. And so the goal is to try to get this thing on a major distributor, and then we'll go from there and see uh, what happens. So. Well, I'm I'm super excited to see what where it goes and to see just where everything goes for you. It sounds like there's so much more in the pipeline, and with the passion that I see that you have for all mm-hmm. this, I can already tell it's going to be absolutely incredible, and I cannot wait. Uh, hopefully, I can be there for the ride and be in more projects with you and collaborate more, because um, you're still near the top of the list for me for people to collaborate with on that filmmaking level because of the passion and stuff that I see that you have for this because as someone who's passionate about it I need to work with someone who's yeah. also passionate I can't just work with people who half ass it mm-hmm. and like even when I came to you through the other thing like I didn't even think about the budget stuff I was like oh I had this dream let's do this and it's like well thinking about all this other stuff and I'm like oh shoot that's right okay oh that one that we were talking yeah. about yeah but yeah. even in those senses I mean it's not impossible it might be difficult no, but no. it's not impossible no, no, and no. so um, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to see where everything goes for you. Um, I think this is actually the longest episode we've ever recorded. Is it? Yeah. Shoot, I'm sorry. No, don't <laughs> apologize. I love, I love when there's constant storyline and constant education stuff for people to learn from, especially from somebody who, like, you didn't grow up with parents being top directors in Hollywood no, and kind no, of, no. like, how that stepping stone are laid out. Like, you had to figure it out your, for yourself. And so I love kind of getting those organic stories of going from zero to these mm-hmm. steps of going from like short film to feature length film which is something like feature length film it's is already its own step. trophy it's a, it's already its own like oh like i did and like the amount of work effort time energy that goes into making a feature length film that people don't understand mm-hmm. is absolutely insane i'm hundreds of hours in right now yeah. on this project hundreds of hours which that's that's insane. And I've got already. a lot to go. I mean, I right now I'm just finishing up the first cut. Mm-hmm. I've got about 19 pages of script to still run through and, and chop up the scenes. And, uh, you know, it's from there I got to then color. Right. I got to do all the color correction and secondary coloring. This isn't like and, an hour job for no, you either. No, no, no. This is right now, this is a portfolio piece. Yeah. It's a business. Yeah. All, the ultimate goal with this project is to get it to a major distributor. The story needs to be told, and we keep saying on set. Molly, you know, continue to say, you know, the story just wants to be told. Right. It really, you know, from the from the randomly those those nooses coming out of nowhere. Yeah. To the serendipity things like bringing on the composer whose family member was involved in this whole thing. Like, yeah. The, the story just wants to be told. It's something and that needs. Yeah, to happen. it's pretty wild, and so I, uh, you know, we. Uh, just color grading alone, I have hours ahead of me. Hours and hours. I have hundreds of thousands of images to color grade. <laughs> um, and I, you know, uh, next to DP work, I, color grading is like my obsession. I love to just dissect the color grade and and just make it look perfect. Um, you know, it's it's exciting. Um, I, and then we get into sound design. You know, you're saying you know I don't I don't come from family that's in this industry at all. You know, ultimately for me, like going back to my recording days in audio, mm-hmm. that was my foundation for this whole thing of 
even though it was music, it's the same thing. It's yeah. production. Production's production. And, you know, we would do, like, fun, like, Foley-type work, audio Foley, for, like, in studio stuff. And it yeah. was a blast. And that's what really got me, like, I like the film side of this stuff more than the audio. Yeah. Because, you you know, you'd, you'd uh, do ADR. Like, we did ADR with you. Yeah. But um, when... When I'd be in the studio setting, you learn etiquette. You learn how to talk to people. Right. You do learn how to deal with a producer next to you or a, an artist that's sitting there in the vocal booth getting ready to sing and how to talk to them properly. It's the same way with talking with actors on a set. You can't talk to them rudely or else you shut them down. Mm-hmm. The goal, I think the biggest goal, and I'm not an expert, but in my experience, whether it was doing music stuff in produ- studio productions or this, the, the biggest goal is to keep people happy on set and I mean by like comfortable they gotta be comfortable as they shut down Absolutely. and you're not creating art anymore so that's what's exciting I uh, another thing I just finished another short film up we just started submitting it to festivals called It's Probably Not John with a director out of uh, Tucson okay um, named Louise she's very talented she comes from a theater background very uh, theater trained she's from Denmark originally she lives in Tucson now um and one of our actresses that's in this film, we found her for our film because of that short film. Okay. And um, so it, it's exciting. We had that film, and it's, 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 it's a modern film. It takes place in the 2020s. Okay. Uh, it's about grief. It's a story about grief called It's Probably Not John, and uh, it's about a loved one that dies, her significant other, and the process of going through grief and coming out of it. Okay. Um, and what could get you out of it. And so we just started submitting that to festivals this past week as more of a networking opportunity. Heck That's yeah. the whole goal of those to me is those, those festivals would be just a network. Um, that's kind of some of that stuff. But, yeah, there's, there's other uh, treatments in the works. Um, but, man, do I have my hands full. <laughs> oh, I bet. I mean, just uh, when I get to sound design, yeah. I mean, we're literally replacing every sound effect, every footstep. We had a, a gallows built. So we had a, a 13-foot-tall gallows, wood gallows built with a trap door that drops. <laughs> and we actually had our actors hanging with a rope around their neck. They were harnessed, but we had them hanging and did that full scene. So, like, to create the sound design of the trap door dropping yeah. and then the smack and crack of the rope as their neck breaks, all that sound design just to create that. I got my hands full ahead of me. Oh, I bet. Know, between all that. So there's there's a lot. You know, what's ahead right now is a lot. This project won't be polished and ready for, you know, viewing by private audiences probably till May, April, May. That's still not too bad, though. No. I mean, that's me putting a lot of time in doing the, yeah. the, I, the, the edit's almost done. Then we go into color, and then I'll start doing sound design and audio and getting all the audio treated and, and all that proper properly done and then in the meantime our musical composer he's he's working right now uh, putting awesome. pieces together and and we're getting that all organized as far as the feel of the music what we want well I'm, I'm super excited to see what all happens for you and again thank you for taking the time today to come on here and share your insight into this field um, bet, it truly does mean a lot well, real quick, I yeah. like I said with Noche, I loved working with you. Yeah, man. and and every project's unique in its own. Yeah, and yeah, and you're by far one of the best actors I've worked with, and I love seeing oh. you do this 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 uh, this uh, podcast.
podcast. It's really cool. Thank you. See you putting yourself out there like this. I hate talking. <laughs> hence why I like to be behind the camera. Right. And never in front of it. Yeah. Right. Um, that's where my strengths are. Right. The camera. Um, but I, I don't, I, I just, I don't like being in front of it. And, and what you're doing is really cool though. Um, but yeah, I keep doing what you're doing, man. You're Thank very, you. very talented. Um, and I'm sure we'll work together here soon. on something, Absolutely. So. Well, I, I can't wait for that day. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll go ahead and let you say your little end quote here. Um, I wrote it down right here. Um, I don't even think I went over that with you. Oh, you're good. Yeah. Already. Um, but I'll let you it. say that, and then we'll uh, call that a wrap. So it's going to be this, insert your name here, and that'll be it. Hi, my name is Clint Clarkson, and I've been unmasked. Heck yeah! Woo! <laughs>